Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, and welcome to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity, which provides inspirational speakers and work experience opportunities. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And in this podcast, we talk to extraordinary people who've lived astonishing lives. Why is it that often the people with the hardest beginnings in life become the most successful adults? And is there something to learn from these people who perhaps have the strongest sense of what matters most? In this series, we'll be speaking to a collection of remarkable individuals about how they achieved success in the face of adversity. Welcome to What I Wish I'd Known. In this episode, we welcome ornithologist and environmentalist Maya Rose Craig. At the age of just 17, Maya Rose became the youngest person to see half the world's birds. She's still only 21 and a published author, respected speaker and influential voice on issues facing the environment and young people around the world. She's friends with David Attenborough, Greta Thunberg and Chris Packham. Her obsession with birds started when she was very young. She was only nine days old when she went on her first birdwatching trip to the Isles of Scilly, and even as a baby she was obsessed. Family holidays were unlike most. She was taken out of primary school and spent six months in South America. She's visited every continent on Earth in the hope of catching sight of the very rarest birds. She was brought up in a cottage in the West Country, and she's spoken of her gratitude for the opportunity to be in the countryside with birdstong as a constant background noise. Often she and her sister will be woken at the break of dawn to drive halfway across the country, following a tip-off of a rare bird sighting. For many youngsters, that might sound like hell, but for Maya Rose, it was heaven. It was just time with my family as well. My mum was a lawyer and my dad was a project manager, you know? And so, like, they were very busy, but it was, like, at the weekend, even if we didn't see the bird, we've just spent, like, five hours chatting to each other, and it was, it was really nice. What did you make of Maya Rose's start in life, Alice? Well, in many ways, it was rather extraordinary because she did spend so much time with her older sister and her parents travelling around the country in their car and being bundled up at sort of 3am and driving for miles. She said she knew every motorway and every service station around the country. And, and there was that sense of closeness between them. The family were very, very contained and, and loving. And I think that was rather extraordinary her but I also think it was quite difficult to be this very different child going bird watching the whole time and she didn't really want any of her school friends to know about this sort of hobby that the family had. The very embarrassing ordeal of being a teenager you know and it feels like you want to be exactly like everyone else everything is embarrassing and that kind of contrasts with the fact that I was very active online and very public online talking about liking birds and doing environmental campaigning and all these things and so I think I was constantly terrified that people would bring it up. The real challenge in her life was her mother's mental illness. For all of Maya Rose's life she'd been unwell without any diagnosis and Myra spoke of her mother's inability to get out of bed at points and the fact that she could barely even speak. 
and eventually her mother was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and she's been very open about how that impacted her growing up. As a kid, the way that we talk about health is kind of something's wrong, you go to the doctor, they fix it, you get better. Mm. And I think realising at 10, 11 years old that this isn't the kind of thing where you go to the doctor and it goes away, it just is, was really difficult. And I went through what I'd probably almost called a, a mourning period, kind of ages 11 through to 13, realising that this is how my mum is and would always be. Alice, what did you think of... Myra's relationship with her mum. What I thought was extraordinary is that Myra, from a very young age, realised that nature could help you if you did have negative thoughts and if you did have bipolar disorder or you were spiralling out of control, that it was a very calming presence. And that's what her mother did, that her father would take the family off. And often that did cure the mother because she was out in nature, she could relax and she really enjoyed herself. And they all quite enjoyed the competitive nature of trying to find these birds that they'd never found before. But it wasn't as if it was a sort of make or break event. It was actually quite fun and they're still very competitive, even now when she's 21, she rings up from university and, and she gets very upset if they go off on holiday and they find more birds than her. But it's quite jokey and very supportive. And I love the idea that, that she now does teach others about nature and how that is very soothing and for the younger generation, how it can be very calming too. At the start, she like couldn't focus. She literally physically couldn't get her eyes on the birds. She still couldn't talk very much, that sorts of things. Like versus the end, she was sharp and present and was spotting things and she was my mum again. And I think that's the first time we realised how important bird watching was for us as a family. And that's actually why we decided to go on that six month long trip to South America. Because at that point we still didn't really know what was going on, but we knew that bird watching helped. When did you actually realise that your family were different? <laughs> yeah, because um, I have a lot of people ask me when I fell in love with birds, and that is literally impossible to answer because I've always been in love with birds and nature. And I think, as you said, it was more as I got a bit older, started primary school in particular, I started to realise not everyone else was in love with birds <laughs> as well. And it was a very weird realisation because I almost couldn't understand why not everyone would also be in love with birds. And so it was kind of this journey of self-awareness as the older I get, the more I realised how weird it was. <laughs> not just the, the bird watching, but I think also like it being like a family hobby in that way. So that by the time I kind of reached the awkward preteen ages, it felt very embarrassing and like a secret that must be absolutely kept. And what's the first bird you remember? Was it the sight or the sound that you really fell in love with? Yeah, I mean, birdie was literally one of my first words, <laughs> um, which I think says a lot. Yeah, some of my earliest memories are of birds. Not necessarily names that I could give you, but I have memories of being out at sea on like a, what we call a pelagic, like looking for seabirds and seeing all the gulls and the guillemots. I have memories of like seeing ducks on the water. Like a lot of my earliest memories are of being outside, in fact. And did you ever want to touch them or was it always the sound of them or...? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I think there's something, like, I guess when trying to figure out why birds, like, there are so many reasons, but one of the things I always come back to is just the feathers. Like, you know, there's something so beautiful and elegant about a bird. And so, yeah, as a child, the idea of being able to kind of reach out and stroke one always had massive appeal. And I guess in some ways 
the appeal of wildlife is kind of you want to be able to reach out, but you can never quite make that contact. But I did throughout my childhood sort of seek out various ways that I could touch these beautiful birds. Like a very core memory for me is seeing hummingbirds for the first time feeding in South America. And they were so used to humans that you could just very gently reach out a finger and stroke down their back. And it was just this beautiful, magical experience as an eight-year-old. Amazing. And what about the bird song? Did you become more and more captivated by the different tweets and sounds? Yeah, I, I love bird song. And I think because I live in a very rural place where we hear a lot of bird song as well, it almost wasn't until I moved away from that that I appreciated being surrounded by the sounds of nature all the time. And I remember in particular, you know, that moment during COVID where we had the big conversation, have the birds suddenly gotten louder? And we realized that no, the traffic has just finally stopped. And a lot of people living in very urban areas mm. were able to go like, wow, we really enjoy hearing birdsong too. And which is really nice because I was reading a study quite recently that said just hearing birdsong a few times a day has like drastically positive implications for mm. our mental health, which I really, really believe. And your sister Aisha was quite a lot older than you, but she'd hold you up to the telescope while you were watching birds. Was it very much a family affair right from the beginning? I, I think one of the reasons actually that I really stuck with bird watching through that, you know, period of realization that I was talking about was the fact that I had this older, you know, she was 12 years older than me. When I was starting school, she was a very cool teenager. I want to be like her in every way. And I think being able to have that role model who also was engaging in this like slightly weird hobby, I, I think was massive for me as a kid. One of my favorite things about bird watching, as well as just the birds, was that was the activity we did together as a family, I suppose, including my sister. And what about when you started primary school? Did you miss the birds or did you still keep watching them? In the oh, I mean, we were still bird watching very regularly as a family. And also, like, I think forming that connection with nature at such a young age just means and still means, actually, that I'm just very hyper aware of the nature and birds around me. And so like a consistent thing throughout um, primary school in particular was the fact that I was always staring out the window and my teachers would always come and tell me <laughs> off and I was watching the birds fly around outside. And I think when I was about seven or eight, I also, we started a bird watching club at school. Did you I, start it? I did, yes. <laughs> and we had a notebook and we started writing things down. And I think we probably forgot about it after a couple of weeks, but for a period of time, it was wonderful. And then when you were six, did your parents ask you to join them on their big year or did you insist on coming with them? I insisted. And I guess for people who don't know, a big year is it's something bird watchers take very seriously. And it's basically trying to see as many different bird species as possible in a year, which I think doesn't sound that crazy on the surface, but it involves a lot of traveling all over the country, like waking up at dawn to go to like Scottish off islands and things like that. Like it got quite crazy. And my dad just decided that he wanted to do it. And I think at age six, I was quite outraged that he hadn't asked me to join him. <laughs> um, and so I kind of insisted that my parent, and I think they thought I'd give up after a few weeks as well, because it was just too much. And it was, no, it was it was amazing. And I had a fantastic year. And what did they, did they stop work? Or did they fit it in around their oh, work? Oh, fit it in around, but yeah. it got very tight sometimes. I mean, it's literally sort of Friday afternoon after work, whizzing straight off to go and see something. I think there were a few times we'd drive like an hour away before I started school in the morning and like get back <laughs> just in time to drop me off at like eight o'clock. You know, it was lots of things like that where it was kind of squeezing things in around our very mundane lives, which kind of, 
it made everything feel very exciting, you know? Because mm. even when you're sat in a classroom, it's like at the end of the day, where are we going to race off to next? Mm. And what about Christmas Day or, you know, your birthdays? Or did you still carry on? Or I think day? not Christmas Day, because my gran probably would have throttled my dad. Um, no, <laughs> no. Christmas Day was kind of the one day where it was absolutely not, which has caused problems in the past. Say, things <laughs> do get discovered on Christmas Day. Um, but my birthday, luckily, is a perfect time of year. It's in May which means there isn't too much crazy foreign bird activity. So, so far, nothing's ever turned up on my birthday, but hopefully one day it will. So what about around Britain? Where did you go on the, on this big adventure? I feel like I have seen every inch of the British countryside <laughs> and it was an ongoing thing in my childhood that we literally had been to every single service station in the UK. <laughs> Which is your um, favourite. <laughs> there's a very nice eco kind of green one in the south. I, I shouldn't have that information. Um, <laughs> but like I, there are places in particular that are very, very nostalgic to me. I mentioned kind of the Scottish off-islands earlier, like going to, you know, Orkney and Shetland and places like that is somewhere we'd end up going a lot as a kid. And um, what birds did you see there? The most memorable one is an American bird species called a sandhill crane turned up and it turned up on a, on a Friday, I think. And immediately after school, we all piled into the car. <laughs> my parents, me, my sister and my niece, who was, I think, about 18 months at the time. And my dad drove straight all the way from the south of England and the southwest where we are in Bristol all the way to the northern tip of Scotland overnight and we oh. arrived at about six o'clock in the morning to see the crane and you saw it and we saw it and then he turned right back sad. around and drove us back again no. um there was lots of stuff like that yeah where it, but it was as a kid it was just really exciting mm. so were you always being woken up at 3 a.m or 5 a.m a lot of times yeah because quite often, I think, especially when I was younger, my parents wouldn't necessarily tell me that we were going off anywhere either. They Because I'd be going to bed possibly before news broke that a bird was coming. <laughs> and so they'd just sort of scoop me out of bed and stick me in the car and then I'd wake up in Norfolk or something. <laughs> How um, did they get that news? Did they, was it just all on... WhatsApp or... It wasn't um, even then WhatsApp. No, this, was, is, it this is back in the day. Pages is what... And some bird watchers still use them. And I think for a long time I didn't realise that pages had ever been used for anything else. Because I think by about 2015, <laughs> it was single-handedly bird watchers holding up the pager industry. But who would page them? People phone it into kind of a, a centre called the Rare Bird Alert and then they would sort of send them send the message out. It's very organised. How many birders system. are there, sort of core birders? There are more of us than people think. Like very, very rare birds. I We've turned up at dawn and there have been thousands of people there. <gasps> That's just the people who are willing to sort of obsessively travel through the night as well, you know, mm. versus if you kind of just go to your local nature reserve, there will be local people who just go there every weekend and go and watch the birds. So I think there's probably tens of thousands of us sort of scattered across the country. But then that must actually be quite annoying if you turn up and there are thousands of other people. It's almost like a tourist destination, whereas the really magical thing is just seeing something alone, presumably. Absolutely, yeah, which is why um, kind of the very obsessional birding I'm talking about is called twitching, sort of colloquially. And I did a lot of that when I was a kid, and I enjoyed it a lot as a kid, I think partially because, like I said, it was very exciting. But I think actually as I've gotten older, especially kind of post-COVID, when I've, I've obviously that had to completely stop I think I've fallen much more in love with the very casual bird watching like the kind of thing that people would go like oh my gran loves going bird watching you know like <laughs> just kind of very gently going for a walk with a pair of binoculars and it's and seeing what's there and for me it's mm. almost like a version of 
meditation or mindfulness where you just have to be very present and mm. in the moment and it feels very good for you and that's the kind of bird watching I do a lot more of now but when you were little it was sort of treasure hunts almost yeah and exactly. then what happened if you didn't find one that would be awful you went all the way up Scotland mm, what yeah. did you do then um chocolate at the service station yeah I mean we'd spend hours and hours sometimes I've spent days just kind of staring at actually I think the worst one was a very rare type of girl turned up at a rubbish dump and <laughs> we spent a whole day just standing on this bank and there were hundreds of us as well just staring at this rubbish dump and we didn't see it in the end and it was very disappointing but like I guess that's kind of the appeal of it, where it is like a treasure hunt, where you just don't know if you're going to see what you're looking for. But then as a child, didn't you get incredibly bored or cold or wet and just want to go home? Of course, to an extent, <laughs> yeah, which I think everyone does, even as an adult. But I was, I don't know, my parents were quite good at entertaining me and I'd sort of maybe go off for a little wonder sometimes. I'd be chatting to them. I think that was actually one of the nice things about it, actually, was like, it, it was just like, time with my family as well because my parents um, were quite busy like working when I was a kid my sister was you know what doing do all her exams do? um, my mum was a lawyer my dad was a project manager you know and so like so quite pressure you know they were very busy mm. but it was like at the weekend even if we didn't see the bird we've just spent like five hours chatting mm. to each mm. other and it was it was really nice when did you get your first binoculars I was very lucky because I had a hand-me-down pair from my sister. So from a very, very young age, I had sort of a small little kiddie pair. But when I was about nine, my parents decided that they wanted to take me out of school and go traveling around South America and go bird watching for six months, um, which obviously was a very big thing. Um, and we were going to be bird watching every single day. It was going to be quite like high pressure, quite difficult. And so they decided <laughs> to buy me a proper pair of binoculars. That was sort of the beginning of my very intense bird watching journey. Yeah. And do you ever name any of them? No, I think for me, like, because it's wildlife, you know? It's like kind of like a whole cast of characters, but they do come and go. And mm -hmm. you're never quite sure if you're looking at the same ones, I think, as well. Mm -hmm. And when you were growing up, were you and your sister the only children or were there a whole horde of children? No, we were the, the only ones, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I don't know, because everyone kind of in that community knew of me because I was the only kid, basically, because <laughs> um, who else was, you know, bringing around their kid to all these crazy adventures um, but I think the really nice thing is because I think also growing up bird watching was much more of the stereotype it was a lot of like middle-aged blokes in their mm. like anoraks with their telescopes mm. you know versus like there's so many more people from so many different groups going into bird watching so many more women for a start mm. why um, was it always a male thing do you think I don't know I think it's the same as many hobbies where it's sort of like train spotting or stamp collecting or something where it's like there's no reason for it to be gendered but it kind of is and I think it's almost you know there are a lot of outdoorsy activities that have like traditionally be seen as male activities but like the really nice thing is there are there are families now that we see bird watching even this kind of very obsessive bird watching we have a couple of groups of family friends who have been bringing their kids since they were babies mm -hmm. and so the next generation sort of is coming through but it sounds almost it's not a hobby for you it's a life choice yeah, absolutely. And I think partially because it, it almost feels like a necessity, you know, in that, like, for me, it feels so important almost, like, for my well-being to make sure that I spend the time outside. And my dad's very similar. Like, again, during COVID, he was literally climbing the walls. <laughs> he was, like, 
at one point set up his telescope so that he could like look at a lake that was about five miles away to see if he could identify the ducks um, <laughs> with mixed results. But it's like something about just kind of spending that time outdoors feels very, very important. And I think also it's just built into me. Like even when I'm chatting to you guys now, I'm watching like the gulls fly around mm. on the river, you know, <laughs> like I'm, I'm just always doing it and I don't even realise that I am. And you were brought up in this cottage in the West Country. What was it like? And do you think that was part of it that you were so involved with nature? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was definitely part of it. And it was almost this idyllic rural childhood, you know, like it's it's old miners' cottage. There's woods on one side, fields on the other. Um, spent a lot of my childhood running around in both. It was really beautiful. And I think the fact that I was able to step outside and be surrounded by nature was obviously like shaped me massively and I think that's actually why I do a lot of like equal access to nature campaigning um, especially for people who live in very urban areas is because like I felt so lucky to have been able to grow up like that and it feels like such a shame that people other people aren't able to engage with nature in that capacity because I understand how important it is for the human brain to be able to do that. And you mentioned that you went to South America for six months. What did everyone at school say? What did your teachers <laughs> say? What did your friends say? Um, yeah, it was it was bizarre, actually. My, my teachers were very, almost offensively, um, happy about my parents taking <laughs> oh, me away. They? Yeah, no, but they, they were the very best supportive. Education, no, absolutely. They were very supportive. They could see that it was a really cool opportunity. Versus, to be honest, we were so young, but I think to my friends, it almost didn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but they did throw me a lovely going away party. And I remember at the time being quite miffed because I was going to miss the school play that was in like a month or something like that. But like, you know, while I was away, I think as a kid having the opportunity to see so much of the world and meet so many people and see so many different landscapes like I do think it changed my outlook on a lot of things because I remember coming back home to my little village and it suddenly felt very very small. Mm. What did you bring back? Did you buy any kind of little things there? Or um, My mum absolutely did. <laughs> um, <laughs> we were definitely running out of suitcase space <laughs> but I think to be honest the biggest kind of record of all the places that we've been and things like that is we have this ginormous bookshelf in our house that's just full of books about birds and in particular identification guides for, you know, tens of countries around the world. The, you know, a collection that my dad's had going for nearly 30 years. And it's like, you know, on that bookshelf, you could probably identify literally every single bird in the world. And it's um, it's never growing collection. Amazing. And did, did anything ever go wrong? There was something happened with a maggot in... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, various, various things went wrong on these holidays, as things do. But that one you're mentioning is particularly traumatic. So what happened? It was when I was about eight and we went to Ghana and I got a very painful lump on the back of my head and... My parents decided, or it was, it was, you know, really sore, so they decided it must be an infected mosquito bite, and so they thought that they should pluck the hair out of the middle. And instead of it sort of healing back up and the skin knitting together, the, that little hole got bigger and bigger and bigger, and it was agonisingly painful, and no matter what they did, what disinfectant they did, it wasn't getting better, basically. And we were in Ghana this whole time as well, so it wasn't until we got home about a week later, and I was, it was like agonizing and they were like right we need to call the doctor and the doctor poked around and he said basically there was a ginormous maggot that had been living in my head that was actually about to 
transform into a fly and hatch. Oh, um, oh. so I think he did actually. Did it burrowed into your brain, effectively. It, it was, yeah, it was kind of, it was very weird actually. It was in the skin, but it was between my skin and my skull, which I think is why it was mm. so painful because it was like the size of my thumb. Was your mother throwing up? My mum wasn't there. My dad was green and is actually very, very <laughs> traumatized by this because it took the. Obviously, the doctor had never had to deal with anything like this before, so it wasn't his area of expertise. So he tried to just pull it out, and, <laughs> um, not to be really gross, but they hook themselves in. You can't just pull them out. And so it's, it took about an hour of um, basically drowning it in Vaseline before he could get, like yank it out, and it was ginormous. Did you um, keep it then in a bottle? He sent it off to be studied in London because it was possibly the first of its kind in the UK. Um, and to this oh. day, that's why the hair on the back of my head doesn't quite sit right because oh. of the scar tissue. So I was actually very chill with all of this when I was a kid. It was my dad who was like very upset because he had to watch. So he had to watch the whole thing. So in, in some ways, the British birds your favourites. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, which is, um, I've had so many people come to me being like, you know, I'd love to travel. Like you have British birds are so brown and boring and, you know, British birders have a nickname. Like they call these birds sort of LBJs or little brown jobs. <laughs> um, and we do have a lot of those, but I do think there is something so endearing about British wildlife that is very underappreciated when people actually live here. And so I'm quite a big defender of the LBJs, like the the wrens and the sparrows and the dunnocks and things like that, because they are our garden birds, you know, they're our closest neighbours and they are really beautiful when you actually stop and look at them. And should people have bird feeders, do you think, or are you against that? Yeah, no, bird feeders are fantastic. We love feeding our birds in the UK. I think we do it more than possibly any other country in Europe. (laughs) Our countryside is very kind of depleted of things that birds would normally eat. And so people sort of saying, oh, are we disrupting the lives of birds by feeding them? It's like, not really, because we've already disrupted their homes and the places that they live. And so if anything, sort of leaving water out and food out for the birds is helping maintain the populations that we still have. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester and me, Alice Thompson. There'll be more from us just after this. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Welcome back to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester. And me, Alice Thompson, and our guest on this episode, Maya Rose Craig. How much is it about writing lists for you and how much is it about environment and natural experience? I think a bit of both. Um, I like a bit of order, so I enjoy a list. (laughs) But I think for me, it's more of a way to record thousands of 
fantastic experiences I've had over the years like even in terms of writing my book Bird Girl like people always are like do you keep all these really detailed diaries and things like that and it's like no because actually when I kind of think back over my life every single bird kind of has a memory attached to it and so like when I go exactly and and so it's like you know where did when I saw the southern cassowary it's like we were doing this and we were here and this happened before and this happened after and that moment in time is remembered I suppose Mm. and so it's almost like through this constellation of birds is how I remember my whole life. Do you have a photograph for each one? I'm actually not super into photography which I think is partially because like I said before I'm quite into kind of the peaceful mindfulness thing and so I quite enjoy just being there. But I do also enjoy and my dad's actually quite into photography so if he happens to get nice pictures of birds. I definitely appreciate it. Were you bullied at all at school for having this hobby or not? I think I spent a lot of my time in secondary school being terrified that I would be. The very embarrassing ordeal of being a teenager, you know, and it feels like you want to be exactly like everyone else. Everything is embarrassing. And that kind of contrasted with the fact that I was very active online and very public online talking about liking birds and doing environmental campaigning and all these things. And so I think I was constantly terrified that people would bring it up, which is bizarre (laughs) because obviously everyone knew about it. But Um, you were quite bullied online as well, weren't you? Yeah, and I think in terms of school, I, I I think I was just assuming that people cared much more about my life than they really did, basically. And no one really bullied me in, until an age where people found it interesting, no one really cared. Versus like online, I felt much more confident and like I could say all the things I wanted to say and all of these things. And I kind of wasn't worried about being singled out as being weird. But that was actually the space where for a time I was getting quite a lot of like online abuse, especially actually when I started doing a lot of my anti-racism campaigning, which got a a lot of abuse actually. And I think for a period, obviously that was really difficult. But I think the weirdest thing is kind of looking back and being like, that is like a 13, 14 year old girl, you know, like who was, I don't know, spending their time sending like nasty tweets and stuff Mm. like that. And it's quite weird to look back on because these days I don't get that, partially because I have a really lovely community of people but I just don't get that in the same Mm. way and I do think it's because I'm an adult now yeah and your mum Helena is British Bangladeshi Mm. just tell us a bit about her background and how she met your dad my grandparents immigrated here from Bangladesh in the 50s and 60s and so my mum was kind of grew up in uh, inner city Bristol always thought of herself as a city girl never really thought of herself as someone who was interested in nature or went out in nature when she met my dad, someone sort of went up to her and they were like, be careful, he's a twitcher. Um, and she <laughs> That sounds know, worse, doesn't I it? I know, it sounds terrible. <laughs> and I think she suspected the worst, but she always said if she found out what that actually meant, she probably would have run in the other direction. <laughs> but she didn't know it had anything to do with birds, so she proceeded. And even when they started dating, she was sort of like, you can do your bird watching, but I want nothing to do with this. You know, you can go and do it by yourself. But the thing was, my sister was about five at the time and she was really interested in birds and so her and my dad started spending lots of time together bird watching and my mum started to feel a bit left out um and so she sort of finally decided that she'd go with them and give it just one shot so she gave it one day and in that one day she came across a golden pheasant in the forest which if people look <laughs> up a golden pheasant they are not the kind of bird that you'd think we'd have in the UK they're these big beautiful red and gold almost phoenix like looking birds and she just totally fell in love with nature and birds and she still does to this day because it's very rare not only for women not to 
sort of with women together mm. watching and for children but actually mixed race or ethnic minority people tend to be less involved in birding so that must have been really hard at the beginning for her I think it was just counter to everything she thought about herself, I suppose. Like I said, she was a city girl. And I think it's through that experience and through my own life experiences is kind of why I set up my charity, Black to Nature, because I'd spent my whole life with people being like, oh, you know, there are just certain types of people who don't enjoy spending time outdoors. That's why it is the way it is. But I was like, that can't be true because look at my family. And so, like, I started doing nature camps to get ethnic minority kids from especially urban areas out into nature to help them fall in love with nature and the outdoors and I've been doing that for like eight years now and I think my favorite thing about it is just like I've seen hundreds of kids fall in love with birds and nature over the years and it is just like it feels like such a privilege to watch these kids you know and tell us about what they say and do you think they go back to nature afterwards yeah absolutely I mean um Less so now because people know a bit more what we're about, but especially at the beginning, we'd have kids turning up being like, don't want to be here. This is really boring, not interested. (laughs) Very uncool. My mum made me come. And then it's like over the course of two or three days, just totally upending those expectations, introducing them to an environment that's very alien to them. You know, like a lot of the, especially younger kids we work with have never been to the countryside before they're excited to even be seeing like the sheep and the cows on the way Mm. to the camps that they're going to one moment that really sticks in my brain is like a little girl who's only like six or seven coming up to me and being like it smells of cow poo here and it's like yeah fair (laughs) enough and then she just kind of went like but I still like it more than the smell of the pollution in the city um there's a lot of that going on where it's like actually introducing kids to something new is always a good thing and they do always connect in some shape or form and I think that that's something that you carry with you you know what do you think your family would have done because your mother took you birding when she was pregnant what would your family have done if you hadn't liked birding your grandmother said you were sort of almost predestined to be a birder I know it's like I genuinely don't know but I do think they wouldn't have forced me and the part of the enjoyment of it was we were all doing something that we enjoyed together I genuinely don't know. I think the whole dynamic of the family would be different. Maybe they would have birdwatched less. I I genuinely can't even conceive. And did you ever rebel and want to go to a theme park or a beach holiday? Yeah, totally. But I think that's kind of the way that my parents were really good about it is they, it was never like birdwatching or nothing. And they were fantastic, especially when I was younger about like making everything slot together. Like I have a lot of memories of going to see a bird and then racing back to go to someone's like birthday sleepover or something like that. It was the best of both worlds, mm-hmm. I suppose. But I think also like I wasn't, I personally wasn't that interested in just kind of like going on a normal holiday or something like that, you know, like I also wanted to go and see them. And did you feel quite different at school? Because you were quite shy, weren't you? I don't know. It's again, one of those things where I was very hyper aware that I had very different life experiences from other people. And it's even like what I was saying earlier, kind of having the privilege of traveling the world and then suddenly coming back to, you know, your very small village was a very weird experience for me as a kid because I suddenly felt like I'd, I don't know, seen so much more than my peers, I guess. And I kind of tried to talk to them about these experiences and obviously like they weren't really able to understand that. But I think the biggest difference I had really was doing all of this nature stuff and having traveled was the main reason I got involved in environmental campaigning at such a young age because I was like 11 when I started and I think it was a from having a very deep love of nature and wildlife but also like 
having been able to travel and see a lot of these issues firsthand for myself, like the terrible deforestation in South America and things like that. And did it make you very mindful as well, do you think? Because you must spend hours just staring out in space. It's almost like meditation. Probably not. I think it's almost the opposite, where I'm not someone who that comes to very easily at all. And so it's sort of like almost making myself or creating the space for myself to go and do that feels almost like, I don't know, like I'm rinsing my brain out of it. Mm. Are you very competitive then? You've got to oh, absolutely, compete with yeah. A Twitch is always very competitive. I'm very competitive in everything. But <laughs> unfortunately, birdwatching is one of the few spaces where that works out well for me. <laughs> Why? Because you've got to get there first or got to see yeah, the most. Yeah, um, and I, I don't know. I was probably never the sportiest kid in school either. And was it strange when you started to sort of become a celebrity and people started to know about you and you met... Oh, it's still... David Attenborough, and then he met Greta Thunberg. Because I don't... Like, because people talk about it in terms of, like, being a role model or being well-known, I don't really feel like that. I feel very normal. Do people recognise you at all in the street? Yeah, especially in Bristol, actually. (laughs) Um, I kind of forget, I suppose, but it is... I think the most exciting part of it is kind of the opportunities that's lent me, such as meeting David Attenborough. That was a very, very cool moment. So what did Um, he say to you? Where, um, and where were you? We were at a conference, actually. We were introduced to one another, and he made a joke about us being the oldest and the youngest person in the room, because at the time I was probably about 14. And then sort of, and we just had a very quick chat, and everyone came afterwards, and they were like, what did you say to make him laugh? Mm-hmm. Um, it was like, actually, he was laughing at his own joke. <laughs> <laughs> and what about Greta Thunberg? Have you met her as well? Yeah, I've met her quite a few times, actually. We've done various events together but we did a panel at COP26 that Mm. we then got back together and had another panel with the same group of women at the South Bank Centre earlier this year. I just have massive respect for her like I think the first time it hit me is she came to the Youth Strikes for Climate protest in Bristol which is where I was asked to speak on stage as well and we were all on the front line holding the banner together and it felt like um, I was walking with like a celebrity or a rock star because like there were little girls dressed up as her there were people like throwing themselves at her to try and like meet her I think like the excitement and passion that she inspired in people was genuinely breathtaking and I Mm. think that's why her role in this is so important I suppose but in real life she's just like a really nice normal person Mm. and when did you decide to write your book Bird Girl? I think anyone who knows me actually knows that I've always loved writing and when I was a kid I always wanted to be an author and then I kind of felt like throughout my life I had been always asked the question of like but why birds why bird watching of all the hobbies and it was it's so hard to explain to people and so I realized I wanted to write this book about birds that would that someone could read it and they could understand but also maybe fall in love with nature themselves and so I wanted to write that and then it was only sort of as I was I was sketching out what that would look like because I realised it was going to get much more personal than I had originally envisaged. And so it kind of went from a book just about the birds I had seen, basically, and why that was so special to me to sort of something that was going much more into kind of, you know, a lot of my social anxiety in school and especially one of the massive threads throughout the book is my mum's, you know, struggles with bipolar disorder over the years and the way that my family has turned to birds time and time again to basically deal with and cope with that. So when did you first become aware of your mother's mental health problems? I think it's almost difficult to say because she's always been a very big personality and 
you know, she was a lawyer and she was very passionate and she was really smart and, you know, she was doing things all the time. And I think the first time I was old enough to see something change in that was actually at the end of that big year we probably were went a bit too hard and we were a bit too obsessive because by about November she had completely burnt herself out and actually went into a very severe depressive episode that lasted a very very long time and that sort of started a, a period across two years of her a very tumultuous mental health and at one point she was sectioned for about well, for two periods of 40 days. And through all of this, she hadn't been diagnosed. We mm. didn't know what was, we knew something was going on, but we didn't know what. I was only about 10. Was it really um, frightening for you? I, th- I think it was mainly just quite upsetting in that like, I think depression's so hard to explain to a kid because it, like my mum was there and she was in bed, but she wasn't there anymore, you know, like, did she just not get up every morning? She she couldn't get up. She could barely talk sometimes. You know, she was very, very unwell. And it kind of felt like there was a ghost of her living in my house. And I think the big turning point actually was before any of this had happened, my parents had booked a three-week birdwatching trip to Ecuador. Um, <laughs> and she was really unwell, but it was like, it, you know, it wasn't cancelable. And they had a lot of long discussions where they were like, is it sensible to go on this trip? Because you're you're not very well, basically. And any doctor probably would have been like, don't do that, that's ridiculous. But they decided to go. And the transformation that my mum underwent on that holiday was genuinely, again, like breathtaking. Like she went from, even in terms of bird watching, to use an example, at the start, she like couldn't focus. She literally physically couldn't get her eyes on the birds. She still couldn't talk very much, that sorts of things. Like versus the end, she was sharp and present and was spotting things. And she was my mum again. And I think that's the first time we realised how important bird watching was for us as a family. And that's actually why we decided to go on that six month long trip to South America. Because at that point, we still didn't really know what was going on, but we knew that bird watching helped. And as a child, can you remember how you felt and whether you, did you feel you you had to try and save her or help her or make her better? I, I think that almost didn't occur to me, but I definitely think sort of throughout my teens, sort of after she'd been diagnosed and we started, it was, it was basically, she was diagnosed when I was about 10 and bipolar is a really difficult disorder to treat in that Obviously, you can't solve it in that way. It never goes away. But also you're trying to figure out the right balance of various things to help to balance it all out. And so kind of it was me and my dad and my mum working together as a team to try and figure out how to manage this and how to deal with this. And I I think I do actually really appreciate that my parents didn't try to hide from me what was Mm. going on. They didn't lie to me. They didn't try and disguise it. Did you go Um, to hospital and visit her there? I did, yeah. Obviously, without being very explicit, my dad was honest with me saying that, you know, my mum was very unwell and they were trying to deal with that. The thing is, kids are smarter than people give them credit Mm. for as well, because that wasn't a surprise to me, because I I knew that. I'd been living with that for years. Um, And in a way, a relief to know some objective diagnosis. um, And so for me, her going to hospital felt like, obviously I didn't know what sectioning was, I didn't really know what had happened, but her going to hospital felt like a very good thing. And I think actually the difficult period was when I was a bit older, she'd been diagnosed, I was old enough to understand what bipolar disorder was. And I think 
as a kid, the way that we talk about health as kind of something's wrong, you go to the doctor, they fix it, you get better. Mm. And I think realizing at 10, 11 years old that this isn't the kind of thing where you go to the doctor and it goes away, it just is. And that is how my mum is, I think was really difficult. And I went through what I probably almost called a, a mourning period, kind of ages 11 through to 13, realizing that this is how my mum is and would always be. Did your sister help out? I mean, did, because she was so much older, did she sort of act almost like a surrogate mother sometimes? Um, when I was younger, yes. Um, but I, I, I think she definitely tried to help as much as she could, but she also had two very young kids during all this period. The period when my mum was sectioned, my niece was about three. And then like after my mum had been diagnosed, we were going through a very difficult time. She just had a son who was one years old. Mm. And so it was like, she kind of was doing her best to try and help us, but we also felt like we didn't want to put even more pressure on her, I suppose. Did it change your relationship with your mum? I genuinely don't know. In the, like, yes, obviously, but also all of this was happening at what is a very transformational time mm. anyway, you know, and everyone's relationship with their parents changes as they go to secondary school and become a teenager. And so I, th I think, yes, obviously, but also... I think about a world where she wasn't diagnosed perhaps, and I think it probably would have been a lot more difficult. And I think also when someone is diagnosed with a mental illness like this, one of the big questions people try and figure out is kind of where does the person end and the illness begin and who would they be if they didn't have this? And you know, all of these things versus like, actually, especially in terms of something like bipolar, I talk in the book about my mum had been unwell since she was about 16 years old. And I think, the realization that you can't split those two things apart. It's how my mum's brain is wired. And so therefore that is who she is as a person brought me a lot of peace where I kind of realized that if she didn't have bipolar disorder, she also wouldn't be my mum. Mm -hmm. And did it make you very close to your father, do you think? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm still very, very close to both of my parents. And I think it is partially because we were all kind of dealing with this together as a unit. And then we were going on these trips um, where it was literally the three of us for sometimes a month or two at a time. And I, I think kind of we had to stay close and support one another to kind of deal with more difficult times as well. And what kinds of treatments did she have? Did she have medication or actually was the birdwatching the, the best form of therapy? Oh, I like she, she definitely needed medication. I'd never claim that bird watching can kind of solve severe mental illness. But I think medication also doesn't inherently solve things either in that like you need to create, or I guess you need to find positive things within your life and things that help ground you and things like that. And, or things that force mm. you to spend time with your family, mm. for example. <laughs> um, and so kind of bird watching is what became of that. But also throughout my teens, part of the reason it was slightly tumultuous was because we were trying to figure out the best combination of medication mm. to make my mum as stable as possible, uh, which obviously had its ups and downs. Mm. And originally you weren't gonna put your mother's mental health issues into the book. Why did you decide to do it, do you think? Yeah, I had no intention of putting them in. I think because I was 18 when I started outlining this book, possibly 17, and I literally hadn't, even told my closest friends at school, you know? It, it wasn't something that we had ever really talked about outside of the family and it felt just so intensely personal. And also there was a lot of stuff that I just hadn't revisited since mm. it had happened. And so the thought of having to 
think about that and write that down on the page was terrifying. But I realized that kind of the story and trying to explain why I love birds and nature just didn't make sense without talking about our personal lives as well. And I remember going to my mum and asking if she would even be okay with this in the first place. And she was actually much more enthusiastic than I was at that point, because I was terrified. And she was just saying like, actually, we need to tell these stories honestly mm. um, and kind of, you know, I suppose, be, be honest, get awareness out there. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was quite a weird thing to come to terms with, but it did feel incredibly cathartic to write. And I think some of the nicest feedback actually has people been people in very similar situations to me being like, I read the book and it kind of, you know, it's my own feelings and emotions reflected back at me. And do you think also it's a way in which it sort of shows other people how nature can help with mental health and is that partly one reason it's important to talk about it we should all be doing more in nature yeah I mean uh, like green spaces nature is such an important resource for our brains um like literally the NHS has started doing or not just started they've been doing it for a long time now green prescribing which is literally telling people to spend time in nature because it is so important for our mental health and like even though I know that bird watching probably wouldn't have the same transformational abilities for most people there is kind of a lesson in there which is like creating the time and space to you know either spend time outdoors or doing sort of a quiet grounding hobby of some shape or form is just incredibly good for you in you know an increasingly fast-paced culture from everything from like work to our phones to like spending time with people everything's so fast and like telling people to slow down a bit I Mm. think is really important. And you've seen nearly 6,000 birds. Actually, how many have you seen species? Uh, just you? over 5,800. <laughs> <laughs> What's your next? Have you got another one on your list that you really want to see soon? Not loads, but I think the one thing is, the thing that I talk about over and over again in Bird Girl is I love hummingbirds. Um, mm. And I totally fell in love with birds all over again the first time I saw hummingbirds. And I decided when I was about eight that I wanted to see all of them. I'm working on it, but the one I really want to see at the moment is the bee hummingbird. It's the smallest bird in the world, literally the size of a bee, and you get it in the forest in Cuba, and it's just beautiful. Wow. And what's the weirdest bird you've ever seen? I've seen a few weird ones over the years, and they're some of my favourites, actually. Um, I think one the bird that was my favourite for a very long time was the southern cassowary, which is this like dinosaur bird you get in Australia that's about six feet tall. It has this massive bony crest sticking out of its skull. It's like, you know, it looks like an ostrich almost. And it has these ginormous talons that it like can jump and slash people with a really cool, (laughs) uh, looks like a dinosaur, genuinely. Fantastic. Terrifying, Terrifying, yeah. And have some of the species actually declined since you started birding? Yeah, I'm sure... Lots have actually, and there are lots and lots of birds that we've gone to try and see that are either endangered or critically endangered, the latter meaning that it's on the edge of collapse, basically, which is obviously heartbreaking every single time. But I think on the flip side of it, one of the really lovely things about kind of traveling and seeing all these birds is we have participated in a lot of ecotourism, which is basically like the money that you spend to go and try and see these birds is put back into conserving them and trying to help them. And so it sort of feels like we get the joy of seeing those birds and hopefully 
we also are helping to save them. But yeah, there's a lot of birds in very dire positions these days. So do you find it, do you ever eat chicken or pheasant? No, I'm vegetarian. I have been all my life. And do you feel guilty ever because you have to take so many flights and you've taken Yeah, absolutely. And I do think my attitude towards travel has changed massively since I was a kid. We don't do that half, you know, as, as much as we did. And I think for me, it is all a balancing act because I am a climate change activist I, and campaigner. I do a lot of work in terms of climate change. I think one of the biggest things is like trying to assure people because I meet people who are literally like, I can't be a climate change campaigner because I am not vegetarian or something like that. And it's like actually everyone doing their bit and trying to change things is the most important thing. So I do think in the face of climate change, kind of the very individualist narrative is very unhelpful when what we really need in the short term at least is political systemic change. And so, yeah, I am in my own life trying to absolutely cut down on the traveling and flying that I'm doing. But I think also, you know, for example, looking at ecotourism or something like that, you can't ask people to just cut it off without figuring out how we're going to continue schemes like saving the Amazon rainforest or saving various animals and things like that. You're such an impressive person. What do you think when people say your generation are snowflakes or (laughs) it just seems so misguided? I find it really strange for various reasons. One being that like, I think every generation has had their issues that they care about deeply. For example, my parents grew up in the Thatcher generation, you know, my my mum was involved in like anti-apartheid stuff. And so like every generation has their issues that they're trying to deal with. I think the only difference is that social media, I, I suppose, makes everyone aware of everyone's opinions. But I think the narrative of saying like everyone's so sensitive now, like we can't say anything and all of these sorts of things is like almost like a straw man tactic. Mm. Um, when actually what a lot of people are trying to do is make spaces more inclusive and more comfortable for a lot of people. Because I think it's very easy to say there's no need for all this change if you're part of a group that didn't need the change in the first place. Mm. Um, And so it all feels, you know, very over the top and necessary versus for the people who have never been able to break through the glass ceiling. It is literally life changing. And now that you're at university, your parents must be going off on their own a bit. Are you getting worried that they're going to go off and see birds? Oh, they already are, yeah. Um, (laughs) Does that make you nervous? I think maybe not nervous because I've got got time, but I think um, maybe just slightly comical. Like I remember when they dropped me off at uni, it was only about three days later they went bird watching on the Isles of Scilly without me. During my freshers week, they're already off. And it was like, <laughs> right, okay. Um, so I guess it's inevitable they're going to start seeing things without me, but it does feel quite weird. Do you get very competitive? So are you then desperately trying to catch up with their lists? I think it almost in some ways feels better when they've gone somewhere without me. The difficult bit is when we're on the same trip and someone sees something and someone doesn't. Like a friend who's traveled with us before came up with something called the Craig Family Harmony Index, which is basically (laughs) um, the the Harmony Index is only ever in balance if all of us have seen all of the birds and is totally out of whack as soon as someone sees something and someone else doesn't. And it cannot be resolved until we manage to get that last person to see the bird. And, you know, things are literally still being brought up 10, 15 years later. (laughs) That's like, oh, you saw that and you didn't help me see, you know, like things like that. I've never worked out that. What happens if you sort of almost see it? How do you know you've definitely seen it? So if you see a bird shoot past, is that not seeing it? 
Um, I think it totally depends. If it like kind of goes past very quickly, but you can hear it singing, then you know it was that bird. Mm. Um, so you have to know it is that bird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't see like a random blur and go, um, I think that was it. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna tick it off the list. <laughs> um, and how's your mother now? She. Is she absolutely loving the success you've had? Yeah, she's an incredibly proud... Anyone who meets her can tell she's an incredibly proud mum. I am actually... I'm really, really grateful to both my parents because they've been so supportive over the years. Like, even some of the more bonkers things I've been up to. Like, I remember sort of about 13, 14 years old being like, I want to run a conference. And like, without blinking, they were just like, yeah, okay. Um, Let's figure out how to do this. But yeah, thank you for asking. My mum is very well in the scheme of things. Like, obviously, bipolar is not something that goes away but she is stable and she has been for a long time. And, you know, we've had 10 years or so now to kind of figure out, you know, how to manage and cope with it. So yeah, I think we're doing quite well. And what do you wish you'd known when you were young at sort of age 10 and your mum was getting ill um, and you were shooting off all around the world and, and you probably felt a bit dislocated. What do you wish you'd known then that you now know? I guess the main thing is just that things will get better. Um, So I think especially at that age when everything feels very upside down, you kind of can't see a path through that maybe. Because, you know, at that age, we were still trying to even figure out what was going on with my mum, dealing with a lot of stuff in terms of like my sister. Um, I was like a very shy, anxious kid. So like I was dealing dealing with a lot of stuff at school. Like it just felt like everything was a bit of a mess. And I think, just going back and telling her like it's okay Um, and also the birds will help you you've been listening to what i wish i'd known in association with speakers for schools the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational talks and work experience opportunities with me rachel sylvester and me alice thompson and our guest on this episode maya rose craig the series producer is anya pierce and the editor was callum mccray If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young? Or you can follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. And of course, you can listen back to all our previous episodes on the free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.